Our scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But then he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. This is God's word. Good morning. My name, <clears throat> excuse me, is Drew Bennett, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to ask that you be patient with us this morning. It's a Sunday where it's a communion Sunday, so we're already kind of full with things that we've got to do. Uh, but there were just the, some things that we felt like we needed to do that are going to make the service go a little bit longer than usual. So bear with us. I'm just putting that out as an advertisement, okay? Because the subject matter this morning is something that I can't rush through. I did that last week, which is why I'm coming back to do it again this week. And so I can't rush. We don't want to be rushed in other areas. And so we might be here a little longer than we normally are. If you're a visitor with us, uh, we apologize for that or we don't apologize. I don't know what the right response is, right? It is what it is. And we're doing what we feel like that we're, is, you know, we're called to do and to be faithful to. So bear with us, please. We are in the middle of a series uh, from Paul's letter to the, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And we came last week to chapter 7 where Paul begins to talk about issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And, uh, and I want this morning, if you would allow me, to take a second lap around 1 Corinthians 7, and here's why. Uh, we talked about this last week. I feel like we need to talk about it again this morning because what we, what we said last week, I think, prompted a lot of questions or concerns or confusion. So here's the metaphor that I'm working with this morning, okay? If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart or some similar movie that has these great battle scenes, right? At the end of the battle scenes in movies like this, the camera always pans across the field after the battle is over, and the field is literally littered with bodies that are either dead or bloody and maimed and writhing in agony. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are always a few 
but just a few who make it through with relatively minor injuries. But the rest have been crushed and broken and scarred by the battle. And when I think about our culture, and when I look out at you as a people that I'm called to and charged to pastor and care for, that's what I see when it comes to this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so last week, I was pretty hard. That's, so that's my metaphor, right? That's where I'm coming from. And last week, I was pretty hard. After the Scripture's insistence on marriage as a covenant and the implications of that, I was probably harder <clears throat> than I usually am, and I wanted you to know why. I was thinking, as I was up here last Sunday, about the marriages in our church and among my friends, which are in trouble, and some of them barely hanging on by a thread, and I felt compelled to hold up God's commands and fight for those marriages. But I realize that there are many of you who are still stinging from a divorce in the past and you're wondering, what do I do now? Or um, some of you who have been moved on post-divorce to second marriages or even third marriages and things are good, maybe not good, I, you know, whatever it might be. You read a text like 1 Corinthians 7 and it's confusing. I mean, Paul's pretty black and white, isn't he, right? So what are you supposed to do? How do you take these things that he's talking to us about and apply the Scripture's commands to your current circumstance? And I realize that it's hard and it's messy to do that, and so I want to be gentle and full of compassion because God is gentle and full of compassion with us as we struggle with sin and limp towards obedience. Okay? So last week I was hard because I felt like I needed to be, you needed me to be, This week, I want to be softer because I feel like I need to be, that you need me to be. And I'm trying to find the balance between truth and love as I look out at all of you and think about what you need from me. That's hard, so pray for me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, this is going to give you great insight into not only this, this particular issue in Christian morality, but into a lot of issues, how Christians really do take... Uh, God at his word, and how we seek to apply this to all the different circumstances of our life. So this can be very helpful for you. Uh, But for all of us, I hope that we'll get clarity and encouragement from what we uh, see in the scriptures this morning. I want to talk about three things. If we're going to navigate the dangers surrounding this issue, right, this battlefield strewn with bodies that are bloody and beaten and broken, we need three things in order to navigate it. Three things in order to escape, okay? And the three things are just this. We need, and I'm just going to use words and then I'll explain them. We need obedience, we need wisdom, and we need charity. Those are kind of the three bullet points that I'm going after this morning. Okay, wisdom, obedience, and charity. So let's just walk through it together, okay? First, uh, the first thing we need if we're going to navigate all the dangers surrounding this issue is an unflinching commitment to obey the Scripture as God's authoritative word to us. Uh, David just prayed that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of it. See, none of the rest of what I'm going to say this morning makes sense if we don't get this right. If you're a Christian, obedience is not optional. Jesus, um, despite what the the cheesy bumper stickers might say, Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's not my personal assistant. He's my king. Right? He doesn't make suggestions to me. He commands me. And there's only, way to re- one, only one way to relate to a king. And that is to bow before him, to swear fealty to him, and then to obey him. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's written a lot, he's a p- philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. 
written a lot about Christian discipleship. It's interesting, on this issue of obedience, he says, and I'm just going to quote him for a minute, for the last several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made obedience a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to or to intend to obey in order to become a Christian, and one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress towards obedience. Listen to this phrase. Contemporary American churches do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of membership, either of entering into or continuing in fellowship of a denomination or a local church. And so, so far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, obedience is clearly optional. There are lots of reasons for this. Uh, You could point to the weakening of our theological core. You could point to secularism as a movement in our culture, which is just eroded a sense of of a distinctly Christian worldview. Uh, Church historians would go back to to Charles Finney and American revivalism at the turn of the 20th century, which just tried to produce results in evangelistic crusades. So they just got people to pray a prayer to do something like that and brought them into the church and then never really did anything beyond that. There's all kinds of... All kinds of reasons why, but the reality is, uh, and, and what, what I think Dallas Willard is on to, is he says, as far as most of us are concerned, obedience is clearly optional. But when you come to the Bible, that just is not so. Now let me clarify. You don't become a Christian by obeying God's commands. That's, that's moralism, that's religion. That's not what I'm saying. You don't become a Christian by obeying God's commands, but you're not allowed to call yourself a Christian if you don't obey God's commands. Now, I'm not talking about struggling with sin the way I struggle with being joyful and not harsh with my kids, okay? I know it's a sin to be harsh. My wife reminds me. She's my good friend and faithful partner, right? It's just hard. I want to be joyful, right? I want to be joyful. But it's hard. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about those kind, that kind of, you know, I know I should be doing this, but it's just hard, and I'm trying, but I'm making mistakes, and I'm limping along the way. It's not... I'm talking about willful, open disobedience to the clear commands of the Scriptures. Right? I'm harsh, not joyful, but I hate that I'm that way. And when my wife confronts me about it, I feel regret and I long for Jesus to change me. But what if she confronted me about my harshness and my response was, that's stupid, you're stupid. Right? I don't need to change. I'm fine. Right. If I, so what I just did was is I answered her accusation of harshness with harshness. Right now we have a problem. See, if I refuse to deal, to acknowledge and deal with my sin, we've got a problem. And that's what, that's what I'm talking about when I say obedience is not optional. So what we need to do then is we need to investigate in greater detail what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage from these two passages. Okay, And I want to be clear so I'm going to do this in a way that this is not normal for us here. Again, if you're a visitor, this is we are, we are way off the page as far as what we normally do. But I'm just going to give you eight bullet points. And I have them. Don't worry about it. You can call me this week. I can give them to you if you're interested. We can post them on the website. I don't know. Whatever we got to do, okay? But eight bullet points uh, to describe what I believe the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage from these two texts, okay? So here we go. This is what I'm going to try to do. First... Paul distinguishes between a marriage between two Christians and a marriage between one person who's a Christian and one person who's not. If you don't understand that, everything else is going to go wrong. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, Paul addresses marriage between two Christians. Then in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, 
he addresses a marriage with one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse. So he distinguishes between those two cases, and we have to too. Second, the rules are different in the two cases. What Paul commands is very different depending upon which case you're talking about. And this is because Christians have at their disposal different resources that non-Christians do not. Okay, let me give you a list. Christians have the scriptures, which they believe to be God's authoritative words to guide them. They have been given a new heart and a new spirit in regeneration. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in them. So they have a new spirit-generated motivation and power source to overcome selfishness and to obey God's commands that unbelievers just don't have. Christians have the Christian community to support and encourage them and the spiritual authority of the pastors and elders of their church who wisely and graciously are to apply church discipline to lead them to repentance and renewed faith. They have the promises of God to give them hope against their discouragement and cynicism and fear, things like God is faithful. He promises never to leave or forsake us. He is a God who raises the dead to life. The gospel is a living power that can change any person, any marriage, any social institution. See, unbelievers simply do not have these things Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ do. So the expectation is very different. Third, in either case, divorce is never desirable. It's never inevitable. Jesus' words should be heavy for us. Verse 6 of Matthew 19. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Fourth. The scripture makes a distinction between a biblical divorce and an unbiblical divorce. Okay, let me be careful. Follow me here. The Bible does not forbid divorce. It regulates divorce. Let me say it another way. There are, there, there's always sin behind divorce, but not every sin, divorce is sinful. Sometimes even helpful. Sometimes necessary. There are legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, and there are illegitimate, unbiblical grounds for divorce, and we have to carefully distinguish between the two, okay? We're almost there. Fifth, the only biblical ground for divorce between two Christians, according to Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, is adultery or sexual, sexual immorality. So look at, in Jesus in Matthew 5, echoes this, where he says in verse 32 in the Sermon on the Mount, Any one of you who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So it's very clear. It's very clear there in Matthew 5 that Jesus is narrowing the grounds of divorce in the law of Moses to this one exception. So the Old Testament allowed for divorce for lots of different reasons. Jesus says there's only one. It can't be any clearer. So it's not a matter of us, of whether we understand what Jesus is saying, but whether we're willing to abide by it. He restates the same thing here in this passage Verse 9, Matthew 19, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. That is, the second marriage is illegitimate. He's still bound by the obligations of the first marriage. That's what what he's saying. Sixth. Okay, sixth. In the case of a Christian being married, so the biblical ground for divorce where two Christians are married, the only one is adultery. Sixth, in the case of a Christian being married to a non-Christian, There are two rules, and here they are from just right out of 1 Corinthians 7 from last week. If the unbelieving spouse wishes to remain married, then the Christian is obligated to stay, Paul says in verse 12. However, if the unbelieving spouse separates, leaves the relationship, then it is lawful to divorce. Paul Paul goes on to say, 
that the Christian in that instance is free, he or she is loosed, which means he's no longer obligated to his first wife and is free to remarry if he chooses. Okay? (laughs) Thought this is hard, isn't it? But I don't know how else to do this. Seventh, I only have two more. Seventh, in the case of a divorce on biblical grounds, either between two believing people, adultery, or an unbelieving spouse leaving uh, a Christian, then in either of those cases, which are biblical grounds, so a divorce based on biblical grounds, then the innocent party in that case, according to the scriptures, is free to remarry. Because the marriage obligations are dissolved, then a second marriage would not be in that case considered adultery. But finally, okay, and it gets a lot better from here, I promise. In the case of an unbiblical divorce between two Christians, okay, where there's a divorce for the sake of convenience rather than because of adultery, then the parties, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.11, you need to look there, then the parties are not free to remarry. He very clearly says the wife should not separate from her husband, verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And I read that and I think, ouch. Right, that is so out of step with the way our culture behaves. But Jesus is even more direct. He says, verse 9 again of Matthew 19, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The principle here is this. If two Christians divorce without biblical grounds, then the scripture commands them to remain unmarried for the sake of hopefully one day being reconciled to one another. Uh, They have not been released from their covenant obligations to one another, and therefore, if they were to pursue remarriage, that remarriage would, in fact, be an act of adultery. Okay, so a divorce without biblical grounds is a sin. It's one thing, and here's the thing. It's one thing to feel like you have no other option, seek a divorce, even though you know it's a sinful thing to do. It's another thing altogether to respond sinfully to that first sin by not abiding by Paul's instructions to remain unmarried for the sake of being reconciled after divorce. Paul and Jesus both stay say, stay put, slug it out, don't seek divorce, but if you do, understand, if you're a Christian, then what's, what's, what's uh, re- required of you, what's expected of you on the other side is that you would remain unmarried. Now, That's hard, right? I mean, did you look at look at verse ten of Matthew nineteen? Look what the disciples' response. This is great. I mean, the disciples are they are they are fun people to pastor, okay? Because here's what they say: Well, if that's the way it's supposed to work, I'm not getting married. I mean, who would get married under those conditions, right? Are you kidding me? That's too hard. That's too restrictive. It's asking too much. And what is amazing to me. What's amazing is that Jesus does not respond to them by saying, no, no, it's going to be okay. I'll be with you. I'll help you. He basically says, yep, it's hard. Okay, so I poured over the books and articles this week, and that's my best attempt at what the Scripture teaches regarding these issues. So the first thing we need to navigate the dangers is an unflinching commitment to obedience to what the Scripture commands of us, as I've tried to outline, as God's authoritative word to us, even if we don't like it, even when it goes against cultural norms, when it's uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient, and all of those things. But the second thing we need in trying to navigate these issues is wisdom, because what the Scripture says is so static, so black and white, and life just isn't like that. Life is much more dynamic. It's nuanced. It's messy, especially with this issue. So it's hard to know exactly what obedience looks like. Paul says don't divorce, but 
If you do, don't remarry. But there are a lot of people, let's be honest, in this room who are already beyond that. They're a decade or so, or two or three into a second marriage, or even a third marriage. So what do you do? And the answer is we need wisdom. There's biblical warrant for what I'm saying. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then he restates Jesus' teaching from Matthew 19. But then down to verse 12, this is a strange thing. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now what in the world is that? And what Paul's doing is Paul's taking Jesus' commands and he's applying them to situations that are new that Jesus didn't specifically address. And so we have to do the same thing. The Bible doesn't speak definitively about the kinds of circumstances that a lot of us find ourselves in. And and so where the rules just don't apply or it's hard to know how they apply, what do you do? So the Bible is clear, but it's not exhaustive in its applications. Don't think I'm a heretic when I say that. That's just true. It's clear, but it's not exhaustive in how it applies the clear commands. And so we need wisdom. Now, let me give you an example. The, the fathers of our church, the Presbyterian Church in America, took this, you know, if there's one biblical, you know, reason for divorce, this legitimate adultery, and, and they, they said, you know, the, the scripture obviously is very clear here, but there's a problem. What about cases where, where a wife is being physically or emotionally abused or where her life is in danger? I mean, is it really, is there no sense in which that becomes a legitimate cause for there to be a separation or a divorce? And so what even our fathers have done in our founding documents is is they've said the scripture says adultery but but there's a second category that we believe wisdom requires of us to say and and to put forth as a legitimate reason for divorce and so in our standards in our confession of faith and in our book of church order we are told we're told that it is adultery and and i quote such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrates so see they're trying to open the doors for us to be a little broader in our application of these things because they realize that's, that's wise. But remember the balance, okay? Remember the balance. The opposite of having wisdom is to be a fool. And there are two kinds of fools. And we learned this in the, book, in the Proverbs when, when we studied that book. Uh, there are relativistic fools in, who would say there's no such thing as right and wrong. And there are no absolutes, right? They're, throw the rules out the window. They're irrelevant, But that won't do. We can't do that because the scriptures are the authoritative words of the creator who invented marriage and knows how it's designed to work. But there are moralistic fools too. And what moralistic fools do is they say there's only right and wrong. There's never any gray. There's never any nuance. There's no fuzziness. Right? So the relativistic fool says there are no rules. The moralistic fool says there are only the rules. The rules are the only thing that matters. And so what moralistic fools tend to do with teaching like this, that's hard to know how to apply, is they create a subset of rules uh, to help them make sense of these things. So, for example, there are a lot of churches who would say, 1 Timothy 3, Paul says a pastor and elder should be the husband of one wife. And so if a man has ever been divorced for whatever reason, then he is ineligible to be an elder or an officer in the church. That's really, really helpful at taking a gray area and making it black and white. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. Right? And so that's stricter than the scripture is, and that's a big problem when we do that. So we need wisdom. And I want to offer two practical helps for us as we really seek uh, this this idea of we, we just really need, what, what do I mean by wisdom? We really need 
uh, we really need to find wisdom in this. Okay, so two practical helps. First, again from our series on Proverbs, wisdom means being in touch with reality. And specifically that means that we have to apply the scriptures through the grid of creation, fall, redemption. You know what I mean by that? We live in a world that was created. Therefore, there's a design, there's an order in its createdness that we cannot ignore, and marriage is part of that design. The world's fallen, right? Sin has ruined things. Marriage is broken. But the world is being redeemed, and Jesus Christ, God, is putting the pieces back together, and that goes for marriage as well. And there's a short phrase in Matthew 19, verse 8, in Jesus' explanation where this comes out. He says, they ask him, well, then why did Moses allow for divorce? And Jesus says, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, it wa- but from the beginning, it was not so. It's amazing. What Jesus means is that in the Mosaic law, God allowed for divorce because of the fall. But divorce was not a part of God's original design. It became necessary because of the hardness of human heart due to sin. But in the beginning, there was no sin, no hardness of heart, and therefore no need for divorce. And so if we forget, see... If we forget that the world is created, we'll be unwise, we'll be out of touch with reality, and we'll be tempted to just throw out God's commands. If we forget the world's fallen, we'll be unwise, because we won't take into consideration that sin complicates life, and therefore the answers aren't always easy to come by. If we forget that we're being redeemed, we'll be unwise, because we'll forget uh, the resources we have and we'll give up too easily. We'll become hopeful, hope, hopeless or cynical and walk away when we should fight. So we need to apply the scriptures through that grid. Second practical help in order to help us have wisdom is, that, is this idea that wisdom is a community project. That you don't get wise in your own eyes. A person who never asks for advice or guidance, that's a fool. The wise person is the one who knows they don't know and so seeks counsel. And the mechanism in the local church for seeking wisdom is this. First, organically, friendship. And in our context, community groups in the community group structure. But then secondly, and in a much more official capacity, is the pastors and the elders who have been given spiritual authority, according to 1 Timothy 5, to rule in the church. And that word rule means to guide or direct or to cause a person to follow a recommended course of action. So quite literally, pastors and elders are given to the church by Jesus in order that through the Holy Spirit they can help the church apply the scriptures wisely, which means... Part of their job is to make judgments that are meant to be binding on the conscience of those under them. And I bring this up only to say that none of this is possible apart from the structure of spiritual authority in the local church. And so a lot of times things are a mess because of an absence of spiritual authority. In other words, people have been out there making decisions about getting married or getting a divorce or getting remarried apart from spiritual authority in the process of church discipline. And that's where things get messy. But in this church, we have vowed to submit to the spiritual authority over us. Not just you to me, but me, you, all of us. And that's not a power play. It's a strategy to help one another make wise decisions. See? So let me give you one example. Do I have time? Yes. Somebody says, yes. I had, an inter- I, had a, I had a membership interview with a lady a few, a few uh, maybe a couple of years ago who is now since, who, who was coming out of a very painful divorce, who has now since gone on to, to, to remarry, and she's moved away. And in, in the process of the interview I had with her, very, very early on, it became very obvious to me that the divorce that had happened many, many years ago was still a very painful, 
present reality in her heart. I mean, she just could barely talk about it without breaking down into utter you know, despair. And in the process of just talking with her about it and asking her, you know, what do you think? You know, you're, you're a single lady. Are you considering marriage or whatever? She, she reached into her pocketbook and pulled out this crumpled old piece of paper. And, and when, I mean, and when she literally, I, I wish I could have show of it. She literally pulled this thing out and opened it up and just kind of went. And it was a letter from the elders of her church in the wake of her divorce saying, we have heard, you know, basically, we have heard this case. Uh, your husband committed adultery. We do not find you at fault. We want your conscience to be free. That in our judgment, according to the scriptures, you're absolutely free to remarry. And that was that woman's lifeline. Against the despair, against the guilt, against the shame that she experienced, and, and, it, and it was a mechanism that helped her, I think, moving forward, make wise decisions. That's what, that's what the spiritual authority is there for. And so if you're here, let me apply this in a couple ways. If you're here and your marriage is struggling, you're single, and you're wondering what, whether you should get married or, you know, whatever it might be, don't try to make those decisions on your own. Lean into your friends, not away from them. Seek the wisdom of those in spiritual authority over you, and listen to them. Because they're God's gift to you. Or let me say it this way, okay? Let me say it this way. Gosh, don't try to navigate these issues without giving somebody you trust veto power in your life over your own decisions. You won't be wise unless you have that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't even try it unless you give somebody you trust. You have to trust them. Somebody you trust veto power over your own decisions. That's the way to be wise. So... In order to navigate the dangers surrounding these issues, we need, and not just these issues, right? Not just marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but all of life trying to apply the scriptures. We need, first, an unflinching commitment to obedience. Second, we need wisdom. And then third, and finally, we need, for ourselves and others, charity. Here's what I mean. Where things are not black and white, where it's messy and it's hard to know what to do, or it's hard to know exactly what the scriptures require of us, I want to stand before you as the, as the you know, the kind of the, the face or the leader or whatever you want to say of this church and say, we want to be a church, we are striving to be a church that always leans toward charity. That is towards patience, gentleness, forgiveness, compassionate understanding, giving people the benefit of the doubt, etc. That does not mean that we wink at sin. That's why I spent all that time at the beginning, Right? We have to have a commitment to obedience, but, but that doesn't mean you have to be demanding and make quick judgments and use the truth as a weapon to just crush people with. So we want to lean towards charity for two reasons, and then I'm done. First, because of the character of God. And in Exodus 34, Moses asks God to reveal his glory. <laughs> it's a beautiful passage. It's your, it's your assurance of pardon uh, that we read this morning. And when God passes by, this is what he proclaims to be his glory. This is God's glory. This is what is most, most true of God's essence, what he wants to be known for. He says, he declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin. 
So more than anything else, God wants to be known as a God who is merciful and gracious and forgiving. And I want to say to you, not in a way that's mamsy-pamsy, though, right? He says he doesn't clear the guilty. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say he never gets angry. He's slow to anger. And so there are very real, very painful consequences for sin that sometimes we're told right there that carry through even to the fourth generation. That's true of divorce. There are very real, painful consequences that carry forward, sometimes even to the fourth generation, and we're told God is unwilling to keep us from those consequences. In other words, God does not rescue us from the cause and effect of sin. There are consequences that he allows us to experience. But here's what you've got to see. But he's compassionate towards us in those consequences. Right? And so if your parents divorced when you were a kid, like mine, or you've experienced a divorce recently, or whatever it may be, you know what I'm saying, you know the pain, it's something you never get past, right? It stays with you forever, no matter how good it gets on the other side, there's scars that just never quite go away. And what people who are dealing with the consequences of failed marriages and divorce, what they need is not somebody wagging a finger at them, what they need is someone who will be compassionate for them as they live through the pain that is of their own making. So we don't have to punish people who've made mistakes to make sure they learn their lesson. That's not our job. Life is going to take care of that. God's going to make sure that gets done. Our job is restoration. Our job is compassionate, understanding, and forgiveness, and to be as charitable as possible because we are to image God, and that's how God relates to us in our sin and disobedience. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and we should be too. But secondly, charity not only because of the character of God, but charity because of the substance of the gospel. And I didn't include it. Uh, but let me just, but this whole thing with circumcision and uncircumcision, and if you weren't here last week, uh, you know, what we, what we said is that Paul uses the issue of circumcision and uncircumcision as kind of an analogy of married and, and, and unmarried. And it's really strange unless you understand exactly what Paul is saying. That to the people Paul was writing to, spiritual status was often attached to whether you were circumcised or not. And so in the early church, there were people who actually taught that to believe in Jesus was not enough. In order to be saved, you had to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. And if you were circumcised, then it was very easy for you to see yourself as spiritually superior to people who weren't. It was a righteousness. And Paul, in particular, in Galatians, refutes this idea. He calls it a no-gospel or the (laughs) anti-gospel. In Paul's gospel of grace is that we are not justified by works, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, our past and present and future good works cannot save us. They do not merit us standing with God. And that means that our past and present and future sins and failures do not condemn us. Paul says it this way in the passage, circumcision doesn't count for anything, nor neither does uncircumcision. And that's Paul's way of just saying, applying that to marriage, whether you're about to celebrate your 60th wedding anniversary or you're still reeling from a recent divorce or you're in the middle of your second or third or fourth marriage, no matter what it is, it doesn't count for anything. Your spiritual status is not attached to your marital status in any way. So if you're still married to your high school sweetheart and it's wonderful, right? It's, it's just fantastic. You're not allowed to turn that into a righteousness. The gospel of grace won't let you do that. Your spiritual status isn't attached to your marital status. Which means if you're here and you have three failed marriages and you're not allowed to despair and to let that make you feel like a second class citizen, right? Repent. 
But don't despair. That's unbelief. Your spiritual status isn't tied to your marital status, your marital record in any way. So people still in their first marriages are not better Christians than those that are in their second marriage or their third marriage and so on. The gospel doesn't let us do that. So what matters is not whether you've been married or how many times you've been married, but whether you know that life and salvation and the righteousness that we need are not found in any marital status. They are found only in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken upon himself the punishment due for our sins and has become for us the righteousness of God. Run, run to him in faith. He is merciful and gracious. We all need a Savior. And therefore, our only option is to be compassionate and charitable towards one another as we all, as we all limp towards obedience, not only in this area, but in all the areas of our life. And so I'm grateful uh, that we get to come to this table this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you reveal yourself to be a God who truly is merciful and full of compassion, a God who forgives iniquities. Uh, it is a truth that we so easily forget that we, we turn away from the gospel of grace and turn back to our own striving and either get full of pride or get full of despair. Father, save us. Save us from our incessant desire to turn back to religion and away from the truth of your gospel. May this meal that we celebrate together this morning be an antidote to our unbelief so that in this and all things we might find the joy, the energy, the strength that we need to limp towards a greater obedience and a greater faith uh, so that we might bear fruit that would glorify your name. That's what we pray, and we pray it in your name. Amen. And God is doing more than we can fit in an hour and a half service, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, so no matter where, who you are, uh, the past is irrelevant in, in the sense that... that that what, what you need is not to look back and try to undo what, what in reality cannot be undone, but to look to God in faith in whatever circumstances you find yourself and to be as faithful as you can there. And the power for that uh, is found in the promise that wherever God sends you, he promises to go with you. That is the promise of the benediction, so receive it in faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.